session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Just Mercy, a story of justice and redemption. There was a movie made a few years ago by the same name, Just Mercy. Looking forward to reading it and discussing it with you on next Monday's show. The book of the week from last week that I will talk about tonight is The Memory Thief by Lauren Aguirre, The Memory Thief and the Secrets Behind How We Remember a Medical Mystery. And that last part there, a medical mystery, is how the book reads, which makes it quite different from um, most nonfiction books that you will read. Essentially, what we see is Lauren Aguirre paints a picture, tells the story of how some doctors and patients in the last decade or so uh, well, some starting research earlier, but especially in the last decade or so, I've been looking at the effects of opioids and opioid overdoses on memory. And so essentially it was started when some patients, very young patients, showed damage to their brains that resembled things like Alzheimer's disease, um, where there was significant damage to the hippocampus and almost only to the hippocampus, which was quite puzzling to those doctors who saw those scans and saw those patients, and they had amnesia, meaning uh, an anterograde amnesia, that where they could not form new memories. And so it seemed that the hippocampus was involved. But it's essentially a story of looking at how these doctors and patients tried to put these pieces together of understanding how, um, what exactly was going on. But also, you do get an insight into the way that science works, and not to say it doesn't work, but how it can be slowed down um, or the things that get in the way, because some people might notice something or recognize something, but researching a, a topic takes funding, takes support, takes a whole lot of things to make things happen. And if you find out something new, we would think that if science is self-correcting, then that new information gets integrated to the rest of the information, but it usually takes longer than that to challenge long-standing uh, theories and beliefs. Um, but specifically, they were looking at the possibility of fentanyl, which is a synthetic opioid, which is very, very strong and can be very deadly and easy to overdose on. And so patients or individuals who overdosed on fentanyl and then would experience severe brain damage, but severe damage to their hippocampus, which then affected their ability to make new memories. And so for me, this was eye-opening because I did not know about this. I have heard about the opioid crisis, of course, we all have. Um, and uh, I saw a movie, what was it called? Blinking right now. 
but anyway, a TV show about the opioid crisis, uh, Dope Sick, I think that's what it was called, yeah. Anyway, and so um, we've heard about the deaths and addiction, which of course are seriously harmful and literally are costing lives and also damaging many others. But I did not know about this memory loss, this amnesia that can be caused from um, opioid use and overdose. That was something that was new to me, and it's um, referred to by different names even in the book, but um, opioid-associated amnestic disorder is one term for it, but there's other other terms as well. And so some doctors were, were skeptical, or many were, because fentanyl is used in um, a lot of anesthesia when, when someone is being put under. And so to think that that could be causing severe brain damage or amnesia for many doctors seemed impossible or to challenge what they were doing. Um, some of the researchers who were looking at these issues, one of them talks about how he was told at a conference that you're the one that's trying to get us all sued. So it kind of uh, looked like they were challenging some long-standing ways of doing medicine. And so as I mentioned, we see these different scientists and doctors and neurologists um, met, named Jed Barash and, and others as well, as they try to piece together and look for evidence to support this possibility that these opioid overdoses might be leading to this type of amnesia um, and, and the surprises that, that come along the way. And because I mentioned the brains of these individuals were similar to those with Alzheimer's disease much older, there was the possibility to see that can we understand more about Alzheimer's disease through looking at the effects of opioids on the brain and on overdose and in these individuals. And so that was also uh, discussed and explored in the book. And Alzheimer's affects millions of people and millions more will be affected. So it's something that, that could be important to look at. Another topic that was brought up is looking at if this subject would get a lot of attention, uh, research-wise especially, is that who are the victims? And unfortunately, the, the victims of these amnesias were individuals who tended to be drug users or who were dealing with addiction. And unfortunately, they are a group that often does not get a lot of sympathy and attention. Uh, somewhere in the book, I remember someone said something like, if it was children who were going through this, it would be addressed much more quickly than if it's drug addicts, uh, individuals dealing with addiction who uh, might be looked at a particular way. And so that has an effect. It always does. Who are the victims of whatever it is that people are going through or whatever the problem is, that's going to affect the resources that will be allocated towards it. However, uh, it was later seen that some individuals who were taking prescribed medications could also experience some of these um, dam damages to their brain, to the hippocampus that would lead to memory issues or amnesia. And so that, of course, makes it even more troubling. Uh, in preparing for tonight's show, I was just doing a Google search and seeing what came up when looking at um, opioids and, and amnesia. And there was a case of a woman who was given a fentanyl patch and showed hippocampus damage. So she was prescribed something by her doctor and it led to that. So um, this is not to mean that if you take opioids after a procedure that you are going to have brain damage or you're going to um, have amnesia. That's not the case, but it is something to be aware of as far as the effects of uh, more severe use or certain drugs. And also they're trying to understand 
why some people might experience this amnesia. It might be a small number compared to the number of people who take opioids or just individuals in general, but what makes them more likely, or is there something that makes people to be more likely to suffer from this type of amnesia? There might be some genetic factors. It could be other factors in play with how they use or if they stopped using and start again. It's not really clear. Um, and that's that's one of the things I liked about how Lauren Aguirre wrote this book was that it was this chronological picture of how things unfolded. And we see how um, when we're trying to incorporate new information or new findings, it can be really challenging. First, of course, you don't know what it is yourself. You're seeing something new, something puzzling, and it is a puzzle then to try to put together to understand, well, why is this happening or what is happening here? Why does this 25-year-old's brain look like this, something that we really never see? Um, and then finding how hard it is to find evidence like it, because they talk about all the things that have to be aligned in order to even find people with this specific type of syndrome or issue. They have to be someone likely to be young who has an overdose, but then also, of course, they have to survive the overdose. Sadly, many people do not because we would not get to see if they have the amnesia. Then they would have to have the right tests ordered. Fentanyl can't be measured uh, in a lot of screenings at most hospitals. Uh, it takes longer to find that in the, the blood or the urine. Um, then they also have to do some type of testing on them for the amnesia. They would have to also uh, do specific types of brain scans. Not all brain scans will show it and how long they wait until they break, uh, take the brain scans can affect it. So we see all this kind of a perfect storm of things to find cases. And so they find a few cases here and there, but they suspect there's more of them out there. Uh, and then they try to communicate with the medical community. And that's also interesting to see the politics that are there. Again, it's science and we think it's objective and it, it does try to become as objective as possible. But there's always a community involved and there's people involved. And so um, depending on who you are and who you know, that can affect uh, what you get to say and how far what you say goes and who hears it. So that was interesting for me too, to see these individuals dedicated to figuring out this puzzle, dedicated to helping others. You also see patients who are trying to help others. There's this um, one young man, Owen, who you meet um, early in the book and throughout and later at the end. And he goes through his experience where he's unfortunately has this amnesia that he experiences, but then he subjects himself to be tested in a variety of ways. Of course, he's hopeful that they might be able to help him, but he also knows even if that they can't help him, what he can, um, what they can learn from studying him might help other people who are suffering. So you also see individuals who are willing to subject themselves to scans and different things and tests to measure their memory, their, their ability to form new memories, to see how they do to hopefully, if they don't get help themselves, potentially help others in the future in the name of science. And so we also see that memory is this very complex phenomenon when we look at the different ways we remember different things. One of the things they often do with individuals who have enterograde, meaning after some kind of accident or incident or something where they can't now form new memories, enterograde amnesia, is they'll see if they let's say, can't remember meeting someone, but they can learn a task in a way. So for example, one of the classic things they'll do is have them draw something, but looking through from a mirror. 
So you, if you know when you try to look off of a mirror and do something, everything is reversed, it's mirrored, so to speak, and it can be hard to do, especially at the beginning. But with practice, you can get better at that, let's say, trying to draw some figure, but looking at the mirror to trace or go around it. And so individuals who have anterograde amnesia, what they might experience is you can practice this task with them, and they won't remember doing it. So you can show them the star that they have to trace on the mirror, and you can say, have you done this before? And they say, no, I don't think so. But they will get faster at it over time. So interestingly, there's something we can call either procedural memory or sometimes when we say muscle memory, it has a similar feel, but where you are able to do a task better over time, even though you don't remember doing it, which shows us that memory has different facets to it. There's, we can say, different types of memory. Um, one way I also think of it is when you think of conscious or unconscious memories, which has various implications, but there's things you might not be aware of that you remember, um, but you can become aware of some things, some things we, we cannot. But anyway, there's these ways that we can remember things that are different or different ways of doing things. So the book also explores that in trying to understand what these patients have gone through, the different mechanisms that might be in play, what are the opioids doing that leads to the brain damage. It's still fairly unclear what's going on. We can just see that um, it's affecting the hippocampus, which is related to memory. And as I mentioned before, is there anything from these patients and what they're going through that can help us understand Alzheimer's disease, which affects the hippocampus significantly? And that could potentially lead to treatments, uh, interventions, ways to either slow down or prevent the disease. So that can be a promising avenue as well. Uh, often we see this, especially in brain research, that one of the ways we find out how things work is seeing what happens when they don't work or when they break down. Some type of brain injury or lesion or tumor that damages a part of the brain might give us uh, insight when we see what happens to that patient to what that part of the brain or how the brain functions in most healthy individuals. So I thought the book was interesting in presenting this uh, medical mystery, as, as the cover itself says, uh, looking at how um, fentanyl, something that, and, and other opioids possibly, can be related to memory loss. And as I said, I didn't know about this connection in this way. So it was for me eye-opening to just learn about that and be aware of this, this connection. Uh, I don't know how much it is common knowledge, but that's another reason I wanted to share it. Um, so if you're interested in that type of a book where it's a medical mystery looking at how a case unfolds and then leads to other cases being found to understand something quite surprising, but that can help us understand how the brain works and how memory works, you can read this book, The Memory Thief by Lauren Aguirre, The Memory Thief and the Secrets Behind How We Remember. All right, let's go to our first commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi, are you speaking to me? I am. Thanks for calling. Hi. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I enjoy, I, first of all, uh, you have no idea how much I've been changing my life with all the books that you introduced, especially... Dr. Natalia and Brandon, that I'm a huge fan. I appreciate uh, all the Wonderful. books that you um, 
suggest them. You're, you're well, my wonderful. pleasure. And I get, I'm happy to get to read them too, but I'm glad, glad they've been oh, helpful. Thank oh, you. Much. I'm constantly listening to them in my car and have all the books. So thank you. That's great. Huge help, huge help. Um, I was calling because um, I discovered um, some old scars um, during the I was, some of my button was pushed about a month ago. I was in my yoga practice, and as I'm sure you have heard, um, I practice intense yoga, and I have been healing myself for the past 16 years with literally every day solid practice of the hot yoga. And um, I thought I was, I was healed. I thought I have at least a lot of um, issues, but I come from the background of lots of um, sexual um more molestation rather than full intercourse um, growing up as a very young age. And believe me, I've been through lots of cry and pain for the mm-hmm. past two, three months. I'm speaking this comfortably now. I've been doing a lot of work. But also I, I found the pattern of uh, by digging a lot the past few weeks, I discovered uh, that how all this pattern of uh, mental, I want, it's a very strong word I'm going to use, that rape basically, um, it's been through the my first love of my life, um, to with my ex, with uh, a gentleman who I thought I was in love after my divorce 17 years ago. And I noticed I explored all of this myself. I figured it out, what is the wound. And I was in under impression of that I've been healed. And I finally figured, oh, I think I healed my adult self as a 61 years old woman and I could not figure why I have not been able to be in a relationship even though I've been divorced for the past 17 years as much as I have the desire. So I think I diagnosed myself that, oh, that was the cause because my first love um, uh, threatened me and he was about to rape me, which I escaped and in a a small intelligent way at that at the age 21. Um, so I just found the cause. Uh, I thought I did. I, but I will. I'm, I want to open. I'm open to. I'm ready to heal myself and work and address those issues. And you may not be able to tell me about what I'm about to ask. I was wondering if you are familiar with Dr. Um, Joe Dispenza and you. Do you suggest those workshops? That intense workshop because I mean also reading his books and his workshop, basic ones. And if not, perfectly okay. Okay. Um, I was trying to, so is that something you suggest besides therapies? I started my therapy as well. Good. As of last Friday. Did you say Joe disposed? Dispenza. That's what you dispenser. I've seen, yeah, I, you know, I, have to, I can't say I can recommend it because I don't sure. know uh, okay. what those are like. But, okay. you know, I think it's good you're looking for different ways uh, mm. to heal and, and to work on yourself and, uh, we could talk about what came up a few months ago. Um, yes, I It seems like you've been through a, a lot, clearly, starting in, in childhood. Um, Very much. And it continued, of course, oftentimes when you go through things like that in childhood, you're more drawn to some unhealthy relationships as well. But you also mm-hmm. are being hurt by so many people that it's by that are close to you, the people that you get closest to. So that it can make it understandable that you, as you said, didn't, approach relationships for a long time. And so healing is a very complex term, you know, and then also you mentioned why well, I figured out where it's coming from, which it's possible you found that, but that itself 
doesn't mean it's healed, obviously. That's the starting point. Absolutely. Just like if a doctor does an x-ray and say, oh, we found this broken bone, mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't mean it's healed just because they found it. The healing can take a long time, even if you know exactly yeah, what it is. And so, you know, sometimes we can have the sense, well, if I know where it's coming from, shouldn't I be able to counteract it or not let it affect me but it's not mm -hmm. quite that simple because mm -hmm. when we go through something like that it affects how we feel in the moment so you go through yeah. a pain and now you're in a new situation and you could say well i know i have a tendency to be afraid of getting close to people because of what i went through but when you're mm -hmm. feeling that fear in the moment it's hard to differentiate is this because of what i went through or really there's something scary here that i need mm -hmm. to avoid so likely not only do you have a hard time trusting other people, you'll have a hard time trusting yourself in who you like or who you love. Yeah. And that could yeah. be scary too, to, to let yourself like and love someone. Um, and that could be something that you've learned to be by yourself because you can control that no one can hurt you, but you might also feel that you're missing something because you want to be close. And so often we find the things that we want the most, we're also most mm -hmm. afraid of. So you might want a relationship very badly, but you're also the most afraid of getting close. So, uh, you know, you're in this healing journey. It's always a journey. Rarely do I think of it as done completely with most things. We can get to a much better place, but often we'll see that there's still some pains or pain that is there. And it seems that you mm -hmm. came up to something. Now, I was wondering, you said about two, three months yeah. ago, something got triggered if you'd like to talk about mm -hmm. that what happened what do you what yeah. triggered something in your past mm -hmm. and what did you go through yeah i actually maybe even in, maybe four weeks ago i was um I've, I've been doing a lot of intense you know help self-help and uh personal i mean a lot of been working on myself a lot and i always i've been questioning this big question big question mark in front of relationship for me as with all the desire that I've been having and not being able to manifest it. And um, I was in a practice and a teacher started joking with me around a relationship and mentioning, knowing me for so many years, mentioned um, that how, oh, so-and-so is single, uh, oh, she's looking for a relationship, let's find her a man. And I felt so ashamed and I felt mm. so embarrassed and small and I felt the feeling was like, Oh, I want the earth to open up and just get lost. Mm -hmm. And I, um, besides the inappropriate behavior that as a teacher, and she she happened to be my coworker because I'm a yoga teacher myself, and um, I started questioning. I was lots of anger came out, and I was angry. I was mad. I was crying. I just was. I just couldn't find why. Besides, besides that reason. And after days of days of days of uh, just thinking and uh, anger would keep coming, anger keep coming in out of me and crying within itself. And it went back uh, all of the sudden a flashback from the past of my very first love that I it lasted about three four years at the age of eighteen through twenty two, and um, my parents would not. I grew up back, of course, back in Iran, and I live in the U.S. at the moment, of course, it's been about 27 years, but um, so because my family did not agree with our marriage, uh, he uh, basically kidnapped me, the short version of it is, and he was going to rape me, so this is my family, knowing, you know, our culture background in Iran, being you have to be a virgin girl and a Muslim in that country culture. So he can get approval of my parents, and they have no choice by saying no. So I found a way of escaping, 
And um, and I, that was the end of it for me. The whole relationship died uh, immediately for me right there. But uh, and it was by me. So uh, I was thinking on the impression of all this year. Of course, I never forgot about that love or that moment, but I didn't think I'm angry or I had anything, any scar from that uh, event. Hmm. And even though nothing physically happened to me, but I found that how dramatic that was for oh, yeah. me with the first love of my life that we were four years uh, literally close, you know, dating each other. Um, so that came up. Um, hmm. That's, that, that started, basically, if that answers the question. Okay. I don't wanna, um, don't, that, so there's, so. you know, if several things happen in there. Um, you know, the person, as you said, it felt embarrassing. You felt ashamed. You wanted to just disappear, get swallowed up by the earth. That feeling, which you can also look at that, was their feeling that she was making you look desperate or making you look like you couldn't find someone, um, putting the spotlight on Correct. you, a part of your life that you don't, like or feel good about or you have mixed feelings about so you didn't like that and and i'll say this i hope you you could have talked to her about that expressed it to her that you didn't like her doing that or for you she might have thought she's helping you by saying let's help her find someone or if someone knows someone to set her up but you didn't like that and you didn't want that so you can mm -hmm. let her know um, but going back mm -hmm. you know um what you went through now you you escaped. And even what you said is interesting because we often think this, well, physically I wasn't harmed, so I guess I was okay or I wasn't mm -hmm. injured. And thankfully you were not physically harmed, but it's unlikely that you were not emotionally severely harmed by by that experience because it, it it's if you get kidnapped anyway, that could be a very traumatic event. But when you get mm -hmm. kidnapped by a loved one, your lover, your first love, mm -hmm. of course that's going to have a huge impact in that this is a person that you trust that you love, you give yourself mm -hmm. to. And after four years for that to happen, of course, that's going to impact how easily easily you'll trust someone new because this mm -hmm. person was apparently, I mean, you're giving a snapshot of it, good to you for so long. And then all of a sudden he did that with a specific intention, yeah. but still did that. So we can understand it makes you or made you likely from that time forward reluctant to trust someone because you can feel like, how do I know they won't hurt me down the line. Even if it feels good now, mm -hmm. I have to protect myself. And so it seems that you have chosen the path, which often happens, of don't let yourself get that close to anyone because that way you mm -hmm. don't have to risk this. Mm -hmm. It's too scary. And so that's probably where you have found yourself and over these years. And you maybe felt like you couldn't deal with it back then or you had to be okay with it or your family. I don't know how they responded. So maybe you had to say it wasn't a big deal. I'm okay because... They might have I made you feel worse. <laughs> What's that? Oh, no, I did not tell them. I did not tell them. Yeah. So, I did not tell my family about So that. when we can't tell anyone, we often feel even more that we have to be okay. Because, well, if you're not okay, but nothing happened, how can you not be okay? So you probably had to tell yourself you were okay, too. The easiest way to hide something from other people is to hide it from ourselves as well. So mm -hmm. if you tell yourself, I'm okay, nothing happened to me, and now it's over, I can move on. Um, likely you had a lot that you were holding on to. And so mm -hmm. I don't think what your, you know, your coworker did was not nice to you in the way that it made you feel, but it could be good that it helped yeah. you trace back to this wound that yes. you wanted to tell yourself was not a wound, but yes. clearly it was, you know, that, that was yes. something horrific that you went through that mm -hmm. almost definitely is going to leave a scar on anyone. 
Yeah, I really do. No, I came to that conclusion, of course, and she came yeah. and apologized. But That's I'm nice. thankful for to her for opening that wound and mm-hmm. me addressing it. So and finding that because the next the, it happened also with my uh, after that I gave into arranged marriage and it happened mm-hmm. uh, again with my ex-husband and then again happened with another guy after. So it's just like, but it was all emotion. So many betrayed from my husband and so many distrust from from the starting of honeymoon so uh, and then i i was like and then i could knock it yeah so it happened over hmm. and over over the, so yeah, you've had so. a lot of these uh, close relationships mm-hmm. where the person mm-hmm. harmed you every single one of them yeah well and yeah. even the way you say that every single one which i believe you when you say it but it also makes it feel like it's every single person. That's the fear that gets internalized. It's all, it's everyone. Mm-hmm. And so, although consciously, if we're talking, you likely will mm-hmm. say that you believe there's people out there you can trust. Emotionally, you might not feel right. safe to trust. Oh, and wow. so, I know wow. you said you started therapy. What I'd actually recommend is that you do long-term therapy so that you actually mm-hmm. create a safe relationship with someone in an emotional way that hopefully will have an effect. Because when we look at therapy, the most healing part of therapy actually is the relationship that gets formed between the client and the therapist when they look at research. Mm-hmm. So I would recommend if you start it again, if, that you look at it as a long-term thing, not, okay, let's quickly okay. heal this wound. Think of it as committing okay, to it yeah. for a long time because you have been hurt significantly by people that you felt you should be able to trust. And so because of that, it makes it scary to trust again. And so I think you've chosen a life for yourself, consciously, unconsciously, where you feel safe, you're strong and taking care of yourself, and it can feel good, but something might feel missing that you want to be close to someone, but that still doesn't feel safe. So I hope you will give yourself that by going into the therapy long term and then taking some small risks and trusting people. Trust is obviously not an all or nothing thing. You don't just have to trust fully someone. You have to give them a little bit of space to, to earn your trust and then see what they show you. But I hope you will push for that if that's what you want. Now, let me ask you, what do you think you do want for yourself when it comes to relationships? Are you interested in that? Very much so. Thanks okay. for asking. That was mm-hmm. part of it that I want. Yes, um, actually, I luckily I found an organization that they are offering more affordable uh, scaling uh, and this lady is 30 years she has 30 years experience luckily well, we're still getting to know each other uh-huh. and um, uh, uh, I yes I actually was thinking today so I should get because obviously I haven't been able to meet anyone in person and I thought maybe I can start getting you know as much as I don't trust the online <laughs> process I, I'm old, old school <laughs> but I love to I start at the same time uh, yeah uh, putting myself out there. Okay. Well, good. Uh, yeah. No, no, that I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, and sorry, you don't have to, you know, and that's good. You don't have to wait, you, you know, do the therapy and then also you can put yourself out there online. I know for many people, I had a few conversations this, this weekend with friends. Um, it could feel mm-hmm. for some people unnatural or scary in a certain way, or it feels different. What I always considered is it's not online dating. It's just online meeting or online connecting. And then you date in person. Okay. So if you meet someone online, you connect okay. and then see them in person, go meet for coffee for an hour, see if there's a connection in chemistry and you slowly build just like you would if you met through a friend or any other way. So I know for people could feel um, either intimidating or awkward or not good, 
but I always say think of it as just a new way of connecting with people. Then you date them in person okay. and see see what you got. But I'm glad you're going to the therapy. Continue it. It takes time. You know, it really does to build that relationship. So mm-hmm. think of it as a long-term thing, not how quickly can I heal this, but that creating the relationship with the therapist is going to be one of the biggest ways you will get your healing. So give yourself that time and space to do that six months, a year at least. Just keep, I would say, keep going. If it's something you can't afford, go as long as you can. Don't think of it as a end point. Just think of it as part of your journey. And hopefully, although it it seems like a lot of pain has been coming up, that's telling us the wound is there. Hopefully, the healing can begin more in a deeper way that you've probably put aside for a long time. And hoping that just in general, you feel better through that healing. And then we'll see what can come of it, of getting closer to others. Um, and feeling that trust and safety to allow yourself to do that. Mm. Thank you so very much. I appreciate sure. all you got. Hopefully, I see you on a cruise. I'm joining the cruise. <laughs> okay. I hope you'll be there too. I might be yes, there. Yes. I'm... Hope to see you there. Okay. Come say okay. hello. It's a pleasure one day to meet you. Okay. Oh, be, pleasure to so be mine. Have a wonderful night. Take care. Bye bye. Okay. Take care. All right. Let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I wanted to end the show tonight talking about the golden rule, but actually looking at the golden rule in when it comes to empathy and seeing how just like the golden rule itself is not enough. I've heard people say things like the platinum rule. I'll get into that. The same thing happens when we're looking at empathy. So let's break this down a little bit. So when we talk about the golden rule, and you see this in lots of ancient traditions and even different religions and different teachings. Essentially, it's do unto others what you'd like to be done to you. So treat others as you'd like to be treated, which sounds good, but it's a good starting point. And the way I look at it is it's our default. If I don't know what someone else wants or someone else likes, what I can use is what I want or like as a good starting point, being that we're both humans that we can like something similar. So if we both go for a hike, I can bring you some water because I know I like to drink water and most people like to drink water. So I use that. That's how I would want to be treated or what I'd want to have done to me is to have some water. But there's something more. I was saying sometimes I've heard people call it the platinum rule or different ways of putting it. It doesn't have to go into metals or jewelry or whatever it is. But it's that you treat others as they want to be treated, which which is what we should strive towards. So again, if we don't know, we can really only start with the golden rule. I don't know something specific about you when it comes to this, so I can go based off of what I like or I want and do that to you. But if I know more about you, I might be able to treat you how you want to be treated, which actually might not be the way I want to be treated. So maybe after you go for a hike, you like to have a smoothie and you don't want water or you prefer not to drink for a while then wait a while or whatever it might be. So now if I know that, I can't just say, well, I want water. You should have water. I say, oh, this person likes a smoothie. So I'll find us a place to go to have a smoothie or bring them a smoothie to have afterwards. Now that I have more information, I can't just treat you how I would like to be treated. I need to treat you how I know you want to be treated. And so when we look at empathy, a similar pattern or concept would apply. So initially, if I hear about something happening to someone, 
I use myself as essentially an instrument to try to understand how they would feel, right? I put myself in their shoes. So they say, oh, they just got laid off. They lost their job. Well, I could try to imagine what that would feel like. They might be sad. I would think I would feel anxious about what am I going to do next? I might feel bad about myself that I lost my job or I got laid off. Who, how am I going to tell people? You know, I might go through the things that I think I would experience if I was in their shoes. And that's what our starting point is. And really when we are being empathic from an emotional standpoint, the emotional empathy, I try to feel what I think I would feel in your situation. And that's what we can do most of the time. It's definitely our, our starting point, but we can do better. But that's where we start. I just have to imagine you're telling me something. I imagine what I would feel in that situation. So essentially it's not treat others as you'd want to be treated, but feel or imagine people feel the way you would feel if you were treated that way or in that situation. But if I understand you better, I can then go a step further. First of all, I can sometimes just clarify, ask the person, how do you feel? And of course, therapists were almost notorious for asking that. We don't want to assume we know what someone is going through. We want to ask them, first of all, have them reflect, have them connect to their feeling and then express it in a way that can also elaborate on it, just not just one label or one word, but express their feeling more deeply. But we can ask someone how they're feeling. And also even before that, if you have a relationship with someone or if you know some information about them, you might better understand what you think they would feel, even if it's not what you would feel. So if you know one of your friends has an insecurity, now you know if someone brings up that topic, even though you might, you think I wouldn't care if someone mentioned, uh, you know, where did you go to school, but you have a friend who is uh, self-conscious or insecure about not going to college or whatever happened in their academic career, you can imagine, oh, I think my friend is feeling anxious or doesn't want to answer that question or feels bad. So I'm not just going to go by, oh, I wouldn't care if I was asked that question, so my friend doesn't care. That would kind of be like the golden rule. I can go further, if you want to call it platinum rule, whatever you want to call it, and recognize how do I think they are feeling in this situation. That takes a little bit of extra step than just thinking what you would feel. And so when we really are being empathic, this is where we want to go. Sometimes people do just say, well, I wouldn't care if that happened to me. And that can be true. But when we're trying to understand one another and have emotional empathy and care for one another, we try to understand what they would feel. Just like physically, if someone bumped up to someone and their leg hurts, you might say, well, that wouldn't hurt my leg, but there might be another way you would feel pain. So you could try to understand their pain, even if you wouldn't feel pain in that moment. Even when we say feel someone's pain, it doesn't mean you're actually feeling something or you would feel it if you were in their position even, but that you could try to understand their pain. And so this is where there's also a cognitive part of empathy where you can use your thinking to try to understand what someone would feel. And so if we want to be empathic, we need to use both the emotional, which would be just our connection to it, what we would feel, and then the, the cognitive or the thinking side. And also then sometimes we could use that to help us understand and feel it too. So if I know, oh, that's your insecurity, I might be able to remember what I feel in an insecurity or what that feels like, and now I might feel it too. Oh, they're feeling uncomfortable or awkward or the spotlight is on them or feeling self-conscious in some way. So 
we want to be mindful of this because often you'll see people get stuck here where they'll just think about how they would feel and they they just stop trying to understand. So, oh, I don't I don't know. I wouldn't care if that happened. Or you're being sensitive or you got too angry or you're being too emotional. And a few things. First of all, we're not very good at predicting what we would feel in a certain situation. There's a lot of research that shows this, something that it's important to be mindful of. Sometimes they'll call it affective forecasting or emotional forecasting, where you try to forecast how you would feel. Oh, if I, you know, I said, got laid off, I would feel this way. And sometimes you'll be very off. You might be less sad than you think, or more sad than you think. And so very often you'll see people say, oh, if that happened to me, I wouldn't care. We are very good at trying to present ourselves in a certain way and being strong and not affected by things and not sensitive. So very often you'll hear people say, I wouldn't care if that happened to me. Uh, or it's very easy. Sometimes you're not in a situation and you're like, oh, someone, you know, was in front of a lot of people and they fell and everyone laughed at them. And then they felt bad. And like, I wouldn't care. Who cares what people think? And we go to this very logical space and it's a very rationalizing way of trying to think of ourselves. I wouldn't care. It's people's opinions and not everyone is going to like you. And there's so many people and blah, blah, blah. But when you're actually in a moment and you fall in front of people and they laugh at you to think you're not going to feel anything is pretty ridiculous. You will feel something, even though, you know, later on, you might even laugh at it my, yourself. I have a story. I didn't laugh. <laughs> I didn't fall in front of anyone, but I fell in the shower. Thankfully, I didn't really get injured bad, had some minor types of injuries this is years ago, but I tell my friends or cousins and we like, laugh so much about me falling in the shower and the way I tell the story. Um, but it's thankfully I wasn't hurt, but when you fall and when it happened in the moment, I wasn't laughing then I was pretty worried and scared as it was happening in the aftermath. So when we experience something or when you imagine experiencing something, it's important to recognize that you might think, you know, what you're going to feel there, but don't think that, you know, so when you hear of someone going through something, if you want to go past this just golden rule of, of empathy, we can try to understand what that person might have went through. What does it mean to them? Okay, if you're someone who, you know, let's say from a certain religious belief and something happens related to your religion, you might be like, well, I wouldn't care if that happened to me, but for them it might be very significant. So if you're trying to understand them, you try to put yourself in their shoes what are they feeling? Not if I was going through it in my shoes, that's not going to give you that understanding. And as therapists, actually, we get great practice at this because we want to validate and show we understand while we also know we wouldn't necessarily feel everything our clients are feeling. Sometimes my clients will be more resilient than I am. They'll talk about something I think, I think that would maybe upset me more or hurt me more than it hurt them or the opposite. They seem more affected by it. And we also try to understand what's going on for them. Why do they get affected by this thing in this way? Why did it make them feel the way that they did? Sometimes it's related to something from their past. It's triggering something. Sometimes it's just different dispositions. We are human. We experience things in similar ways, but not in identical ways. And so what one person goes through might not be what someone else goes through, even if they experience something similar. So I was thinking of this because you see mismatches happen with both both golden rules. Well, I treated you this way because this is what I wanted. Maybe that's not what the person wanted. I was using an example of water or smoothies, but it could be in how we talk to one another, how we treat one another. So we see there's a blending of this 
emotional and the, the just the golden rule. But we do things for other people because we think that's what we would want, which is a good start, but we have to ask them what they would want. And emotionally, the same thing. We can start with, well, this is what I would feel or this is what I have felt in the past in a similar situation or what I'd imagine I would feel. But that's just a starting point. We can do far better by trying to ask someone to understand what are they feeling and try to understand where they're coming from. And that understanding is a key piece. Sometimes people think it has to be agreement. Well, I wouldn't feel that end of story. Well, that's okay. You might not have felt that or would feel that, but again, you might be wrong. But even still, rather than just saying agree, focus on understand. So I want to understand what you are feeling. Okay, that made you sad. It was your best friend that said that. And oh, you really were relying on your best friend to stick up to you because of this, this, and this. I can see how that hurt so much based on understanding that more. Um, or someone could share with you what they're going through in their life in another area that might give you some of that insight. As a parent, you have to do this a lot. You, Of course, your what your th- three-year-old goes through, if you felt the same thing, you maybe wouldn't care because you're an adult, but they're three. So you try to understand from their perspective with how they feel, with how small they feel, with how different the world looks to them, with how difficult it can be to control your emotions when you're younger, we can understand that they're going to be much more affected than you might have been if the same thing happened to you. And so if that's the case, then I can try to understand what my child or loved one is going through. So we can see that this is where we can look at the golden rule, apply it to ourselves and our actions, that we don't want to just do what we think someone else would want. But in an emotional sense, how can we apply this golden rule and go further? I don't want to just understand what I would feel in that situation. I want to understand what you feel or what you are going through. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Again, the book of the week for this week is Just Mercy by by Brian Stevenson. Just Mercy, a story of justice and redemption by Brian Stevenson. As always, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadir Lakwi. Have a wonderful night. Thank you.